driving here this morning from Greer, where my son lives, I'm staying at his home, um, there was a dead deer by the road. How often do you see dead deer by the road here? Anyone see one this morning? On the way, a lot of them, yes. And uh, I was reminded, the place that I live three miles from the church, which I've pastored for the past three decades, um, this time of the year, uh, it's rare that you drive from my home to the church and not see a dead deer, at least during uh, one, one a week, maybe as many as three or four a week. And I have developed a certain uh, theory and philosophy with regard to that thing, that in fact it's a very good sign. Let me, um, let me ask you, uh, how many of you have recently seen a dead rhinoceros by the road here in Greenville? Uh, which tells you that the rhinoceros population as part of the world is doing very, very poorly, very poorly. So when you drive a by a dead raccoon or a, a dead uh, a deer, it's an opportunity, yes, all right, they're doing wonderful, plenty of them around, and rejoice for the species, even though uh, one paid a sacrifice to give you that joy. And um, we uh, uh, learn to take all things in stride, don't we? Well, I'm here to speak uh, on something with regard to Methodism. Someone had requested uh, a focus upon Methodism, and uh, because I am a Methodist, I guess they thought I might be uh, something of a knowledgeable person in Methodism, which I am not at all. And I can tell you honestly, it's been with a bit of anxiety that I have endeavored to prepare to be here and deal with that subject, knowing that I'm coming into a congregation where there is a church historian around every corner. And here I am coming to talk about American Methodism with you. Uh, but I trust that this week it will be an edifying experience. I can tell you I am not Methodist by conviction, and that might take you by surprise, but uh, let me describe, explain what I mean there. I don't know that one can be a Methodist by conviction in as much as Methodism is not a body of doctrine. Methodism is a zeal. Methodism is a passion to proclaim the truth. And whereas we generally think of Methodism as being Arminian in its disposition, I'll put it that way, and by and large it has been in this country, um, yet there is also uh, very much a Calvinistic element within the Methodist tradition. Methodism was not a body of doctrine in terms of a specific denominational theological orientation. It was a passion for the regeneration of souls, to see men saved from their sin. And that's what drove Wesley and Whitfield who on the Arminian Calvinist spectrum would be at opposite ends. And yet both under the umbrella of Methodism, they did not determine to start a denomination and we'll call ourselves Methodists. They were called Methodists because of their methodical perseverance and drive. They were named Methodists by their scorners, those who um, thought they were extremists, enthusiasts, enthusiasm is a word that's been used, that's been used to describe their zeal, and uh, that is Methodism. And I hope, I hope that bearing the name Methodist, I measure up to that standard of zeal and passion 
for the truth of God's word, for the preaching of God's word, for the proclamation of the great saving message of truth. And yes, I am here to a great extent because I am a Calvinistic Methodist, as was Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I can only contrast myself with him and not compare, uh, but uh, that's where I'm coming from. So when I heard a number of years ago a Baptist say to me, learning that I was not a Baptist, well, I am a Baptist by conviction. It's the first time I heard such an expression, Baptist by conviction. I'm not Methodist by conviction. I was born in a Methodist family, evangelical Methodist, and that is where God has been pleased to use me uh, through the years in the church which I now pastor, uh, severed ties with the denomination that we were a part of, um, but uh, didn't change one thing in terms of the preaching, the emphasis, the desire, the passion. And so what I want to speak to you about this morning is the phenomenon so influential and perhaps well-nigh forgotten in this nation of the circuit-riding Methodist preachers. And so uh, I trust, um, folks, my clock has stopped working. Does that bother any of you? <laughs> I, I, I uh, got to keep it, keep it going here. Uh, I will take no offense whatsoever if at 9.30 someone lets me know. I mean it. Let me know when I need to stop. And uh, I've been told to sit down and be quiet many times before, and uh, I can take it again. I've learned to live with it very well. So um, uh, please help me on that score, because I don't want to impose upon breakfast. In fact, I'm kind of eager to get there myself. Maybe that will be an incentive to me you'll, to you'll uh, hear the move on. Start okay, I'll hear the yeah, Very well. Yeah, I've heard that before, too. Um, my home, uh, where I live, the address is Whiteford, Maryland, is within 200 yards of a small cemetery. And uh, it is a cemetery that uh, is on the corner, street corner, uh, it's difficult to call it a street. We're out in the country. Um, but uh, it's a corner where two roads intersect, not at perpendicular intersection that make 90-degree angles, but kind of a diagonal intersection so that the cemetery is in one of the small triangles created by that intersection. And when I was a boy, um, I can still remember seeing uh, a little church building there. In fact... I was reminded of it last night when Dr. Matsko's presentation included a picture of a Methodist church building where Bob Jones Sr. Uh, would have been as a child or a likeness to one he would have been in, except that one was more elaborate. The one I remember was just a plain white little building that sat there. It long since has been gone. It was called Mount Vernon. Methodist Church. I don't know why it was called Mount Vernon. George Washington never worshipped there, but uh, nonetheless, that's what it was called. And the cemetery out back continues. An attorney who was a member of that church years ago and quite wealthy, upon his death, conveyed his assets to the church, so they built a big new church building around the corner. Uh, but uh, that little Methodist meeting house was the location where I understand my father was uh, made a profession of faith at age 18 when a revival meeting, as they always referred to them, was going on in that church and a preacher named Cy Hutchinson, about whom I know nothing but his name, never met him, was preaching and an 18-year-old farm boy, profane young man from the area, Donald McKnight, 
went forward at the altar call and their professed faith in Christ. Um, that's uh, the root of my Methodism, and I never dreamed. And when I moved to where I am now, I hadn't thought about that being the place of my father's conversion. But uh, the point I'm getting at is this. I learned growing up that Mount Vernon Methodist Church was on the same circuit as Dublin Methodist Church and Emory Methodist Church. Dublin is about three miles away from Mount Vernon Methodist, and Emory is probably about three miles another direction. And if you drive more than five miles on a highway there in my area, you'll find a Methodist church. They are everywhere. And they functioned on circuits. The Dublin, Emory, Vernon Methodist Church had one minister. And he would preach at one Sunday morning and then go to the next one and then to the third. And that was the circuit he traveled preaching. And that um, methodology is a continuation of an earlier uh, phenomenon in this country, which actually, uh, I think, was patterned to a great extent after what Wesley and his preachers in England were doing, in that they were often on horseback traveling from one place to another, preaching the gospel. Now, the, the matter of uh, John Wesley and his work there in England, many of you are familiar uh, with the fact that uh, as a student at Oxford University in 1729, John and Charles Wesley, brothers, Charles writing the hymn we sang this morning, um, uh, desiring to be holy, desiring godliness, began meeting and formulated a list of rules by which they were going to live, to, unto which they would strive, hoping to achieve holiness and godliness. And the group that gathered around them, never more, I'm told, than 25 people, was referred to scornfully as the Holy Club, and uh, eventually uh, would be called the Methodists because of their methods, methodical way of approaching uh, what they perceived to be godliness. Let me read to you uh, rules that they set for themselves, which in and of themselves I think are not bad rules at all. But uh, if they become a standard, a measure of having arrived spiritually, they do us a bad service, and we misconstrue their value. Number one, am I consciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I honest in all my acts and words, or do I exaggerate? Number three, do I confidentially pass on to others what has been said to me in confidence? Number four, can I be trusted? Number five, am I a slave, am I a slave to dress, friends, work, or habits? Number six, am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Seven, did the Bible live in me today? Eight, do I give the Bible time to speak to me every day? Nine, am I enjoying prayer? Ten, when did I last speak to someone else of my faith? 
11. Do I pray about the money I spend? 12. Do I get to bed on time and get up on time? There's a convicting one, isn't it? I'm sure. I think to myself often, and I've told the congregation, the two best moments of the day are the moment you crawl out of bed in the morning and the moment you crawl back in in the evening. Do I disobey God in anything? 14, do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? 15, am I defeated in any part of my life? 16, am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy or distrustful? 17, how do I spend my spare time? 18, am I proud? 19, do I thank God that I am not as other people are, especially as the Pharisees who despise the publican? 20, is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment toward, or disregard? If so, what am I doing about it? 21, do I grumble or complain constantly? 22, is Christ real to me? Well, I will say, if, if I could measure up to those, it would be a work of divine grace. But these were the strenuously applied, earnestly followed rules by which the Holy Club sought to attain unto holiness. And after Wesley's failure, in many respects, on a voyage to the New World, where things just didn't go right for him as he endeavored to work in, in Georgia. He returned to London, something of a defeated man. But on the 24th of May in 1738, he says, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And Wesley there evidently came to recognize that righteousness is not something we attain by our vigorous, strenuous efforts to do so, but as a gift of God, and that he declares righteous those who believe in him and look unto him for that righteousness. And I would say, even to an assembly such as this today, where doubtless there are souls yet to be regenerated, the acceptance with God will never come through your own labors, through your own zeal, even to fulfill the most upright list of do's and don'ts. But it comes directly from God by faith. Believe. On the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well in England and Wales and Ireland God sent revival at the time of the Wesleys and through the Wesleyan movement. I will comment tomorrow a little bit on the, the suggestion that Methodism did not actually begin with the Wesleys but rather with brethren from Wales in whom God moved in a mighty way and converted them 
prior to the conversion of the Wesleys, and it was them, those Daniel Rowland and Howell Harris, uh, whom God used in preaching fervently, um, that uh, coincided with the, um, the work of the Wesleys, but predated it by a couple of years. And uh, God was working something in that part of the world mightily that we rejoice in today and benefit from on many, many fronts. Well, Methodist laymen who were also licensed as preachers in England began to emigrate to the United States. There was Robert Strawbridge, a local preacher in Ireland who came to the U.S. Uh, for financial reasons. There was great opportunity, possibility across the Atlantic. Philip Embury was an Irish local preacher as well. He was a school teacher. And uh, he came and kind of settled in New York and began teaching in the school there. And uh, also, as a preacher, uh, was preaching and people began gathering around. And, and so there was a, a society, that's what the Methodist things were, Methodist societies, uh, in New York. And then uh, a Thomas Webb, who was an English military man in the country, uh, hearing of these in New York, joined with them. And so you had a group without an ordained minister, simply local preachers, meeting uh, around Philip Embury in the New York area. And so they sent a petition to John Wesley requesting that he send them ministers to preach in what was beginning to be a development of uh, potential Methodist societies uh, developing around these local preachers who, with the zeal of Methodism, were, in addition to their vocation, uh, preaching and gathering souls together. And so in um, 1769, Wesley responded, sending two brethren over. And in 1771, uh, a fellow by the name of Francis Asbury was sent over. Um, all of these men, except Francis Asbury, would leave this continent at the time of the Revolutionary War. Wesley um, kind of took sides. Can you blame him? He was an Englishman. And uh, these rebel colonists across the Atlantic, uh, what are they up to anyhow? And uh, I don't know that he had that kind of an attitude, but you get the idea. And uh, he wrote a little pamphlet concerning the problem, and it was clear where his sympathies were, which created somewhat of a rift between the colonists who were beginning to assemble around these local preachers that had come from England and the English oversight. So Francis Asbury was sent over by John Wesley in order to um, satisfy the desire for ordained ministers in this country. Asbury uh, had this to say concerning coming to America. Whither am I going? To the new world. What to do? To gain honor? No, if I know my heart. To get money? No. I am going to live to God and to bring others to do so. If God does not acknowledge me in America, I will soon return to England. 
Well, Asbury never returned to England. Spent the rest of his life preaching and organizing and superintending a group of ministers that developed out of the Methodist system. And one historian has observed, perhaps more than one, but I've only read one, um, has observed that uh, perhaps this was the best thing that could have happened to American Methodism because it guaranteed that its preachers would be American citizens, people of this land. There would be a native ministry in this land not dependent upon a mother church in England. Nevertheless, the uh, colonists developing in these Methodist societies uh, wanted the oversight of John Wesley, and so there was the vote made uh, in the first Methodist conference in America in 1773 to adopt the doctrine and discipline of the Methodists and to affirm John Wesley's rule over the American societies. Now, when I talk about the discipline of the Methodists, uh, probably many of you understand I'm not talking about um, uh, you know, a, a whipping post or something, but uh, about the book called The Discipline. In Methodist circles, the Book of Church Order is the discipline. And uh, by the content of the discipline, the denominational uh, doctrinal perspective is set forth. Wesley uh, took the, um, the 39 articles of the Church of England and reduced them down to 25, Wesley's Articles of Faith. And throughout my time denominationally in the Evangelical Methodist Church of America, the Book of Discipline has Wesley's 25 Articles of Faith as the doctrine of the Methodist Church. And I could embrace those and live by those, provided you let me define each term in them. Uh, but, uh, and that's the breadth and the spirit of historic Methodism. And so the uh, meeting that I mentioned there in 1773 was to uh, ensure that they were under the discipline of the Methodist Church had adopted the doctrine the discipline speaks of, which as I've mentioned is a very general historic Christian orthodoxy and uh, Wesley's rule. Well, as Asbury continued in this country uh, and was so influential, it's well perhaps uh, to focus upon uh, Francis Asbury. And so let me read just a little bit because uh, I certainly don't have it memorized and I'm, I'm no, would you call it an Asburyan or whatever. Anyway, uh, Asbury, uh, it is said his labors were not confined to the Atlantic cities or older settlements of the New Continent where he would have met with those comforts he had enjoyed at the parental home in the land of his birth but there was not part of the work which he did not equally claim as his personal superintendence. He was in labors more abundant than even Wesley himself. How much Methodism on the continent of North America is indebted to him we cannot now determine. We may in some degree know and feel how cheering the success was as to the result of those labors when we reflect on that his arrival reflect that on his arrival, 
there were only 600 members, but ere he ceased to labor, there were not less than 212,000 enjoying the blessings of Christian fellowship. Bishop Asbury uh, spent some 40 years here traveling, and we'll mention a little bit more of that later if I can remain true to my notes. Just one little incident uh, that gives some insight, I think, into uh, Asbury in 1788. He was traveling to Charleston, South Carolina. Now, mind you, much of his ministry was in the area of uh, Maryland, the eastern shore of Maryland and Delaware. In fact, I visited a Methodist three-room museum, Barrett's Chapel. Have any of you heard of that or been there? I know the church historians doubtless have, uh, but uh, Barrett's Chapel was the meeting place of Thomas Coke and Francis Asbury, Coke being another Methodist who was sent over later, and they met one another there and embraced, and both became the co-superintendents of the Methodist societies in this uh, uh, country. But there's a three-room museum there of Methodist history, especially of the Delmarva from the peninsula area of history, uh, but uh, quite edifying. Well, uh, Asbury spent much time in that area, but uh, here he is um, uh, headed to Charleston, South Carolina. How many of you have ever ridden a horse from Maryland to Charleston, South Carolina? Uh, there you have it. Uh, just amazing as I read uh, these feats. Um, and today we can sit down on a plane in Baltimore and an hour later stand up uh, on that same plane in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, you consider the time involved. Well, 18, uh, 1788, Asbury is on his way to Charleston when he saw a slave sitting on a creek bank fishing. And so he began speaking earnestly to the man regarding his soul's salvation and told him the dangers of sin, the shortness of life, the dreadful day of judgment. He pointed him to Christ and salvation by faith in Christ, entreating him to repent and call upon God for mercy. The man whose name was Punch was known as a wholly irreligious man, had no religion at all, ungodly slave, but he seemed deeply touched by Asbury's words. The bishop sang a hymn, then prayed with Punch, bade him farewell, and journeyed onward. Punch returned that day to his dwelling, dwelling upon what he had heard. He began praying earnestly for forgiveness of sins and was in a few days brought to know that his sins were forgiven. He spoke with his fellow slaves who knew no more of truth than he had known and an interest was aroused in them. Some of them began to call out to God for mercy, looking to punch for instruction. In time, groups would crowd into his dwelling and around the door for religious discussion and prayer, and his overseer, observing the growing assemblies, forbade any more such meetings, restricting punch to speak privately to only a few acquaintances. One night, his overseer called him to come to his
All right. Can be heard now. So, did I wear that microphone out, or what was it? Is it, is it time for breakfast? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Stephen. <clears throat> so, uh, looking at these Methodist ministers, uh, they had to be a rugged and, and unique group of men. Let me just reference a couple of them here. There was one Ezekiel Cooper that I learned of um, just a couple of weeks ago whose lap desk uh, is in the possession of the little museum I mentioned up there in uh, Delaware. Um, now, now, mind you, if you are traveling on horseback on a circuit anywhere from 300 to 500 miles, and once a month you make that circuit from village to village, community to community, uh, what do you pack to take with you? Uh, horses can't tow U-Haul trailers. Right? So you go with minimal, minimal items, and so uh, they would travel, they had no library to take with them. Had they had a library, they couldn't take it. So they went with their Bible, their hymnal, perhaps singing the hymn we sang this morning, and a copy of the Discipline, the Methodist Book of Discipline, and perhaps a few pamphlets that had been uh, published that the headquarters, the superintendents, tried to get to their ministers, but that was the extent of what they could take with them, uh, plus any other items that might be necessary for their existence uh, traveling as they did. And so uh, in Ezekiel Cooper's lap desk, they found um, everything that he needed. There was a fishing line uh, with which he could stop and catch something to eat, possibly out of a stream or a creek. Um, there was wax by which to seal letters uh, that could be mailed. He didn't have envelopes that he could lick and seal up and uh, dread the taste afterward but um, wax by which the letters would be sealed to be mailed. Um, there were in his possession some surgical instruments, and I wondered about that. It's a little, little um, box that folds shut, and there were about six uh, look-like scalpels in there, surgical instruments. And in talking with the curator there, he informed me having read the journal that Ezekiel Cooper kept, that he thinks Ezekiel Cooper was a hypochondriac, that in his journal he is uh, complaining uh, about not feeling well today, and that's repeated so many different times. And, of course, uh, there was a time in history, you recall, where bleeding was the way to cure diseases, to get, get it out of your body. And so it's thought that perhaps that's why that... Um, packet of surgical instruments was in there. Uh, there were also, and I saw them with my own two eyes, a collection of human teeth. Teeth. Now I know at times preaching is like pulling teeth, and I didn't know if there was any connection there at all. I mentioned it to the guide that was showing me, and uh, she hadn't thought about that before. Um, I, I know too, in fact, I, I I mentioned there, I hope he didn't take the teeth out of his preaching by any means, but it was really engaged in making, making the point of it. But um, evidently, um, a dentist going through that museum saw those teeth 
and knew immediately this person had diseased gums. And so maybe that's why he wasn't feeling well. And I don't know if that has anything <laughs> to do with being foul-mouthed or not, but uh, with the diseased guns, you, you see the kind of things, and uh, doubtless Ezekiel Cooper was uh, um, kind of exceptional with some of these things, but unique individuals, individuals indeed, and individuality was, of course, a big part of our country, an independent spirit. Uh, what other country makes a national holiday to celebrate independence? We do, and others have followed us, I guess, in the course of history. But uh, that independent spirit, if I may take a little um, departure from uh, my prepared thoughts, that independent spirit, I think, is uh, a big part of the explanation of why so much of American evangelicalism wound up being an Arminian evangelicalism. Uh, our forefathers on the continent uh, for generations and centuries were born into a culture where there was a sovereign. And you have nothing to do with it. And that's what you come into when you come into the world and the sovereign determines for you what things are to be the way they are. And you accept it and live with it. And that mindset, I would think, makes it much more easier to uh, consider that there is a sovereign indeed, and he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He ruleth over all. Whereas in this country, there was not a sovereign. God helps those who help themselves. You pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. You go out into this wilderness, and you sink or swim. You make your own way. And the mindset there is so different from that where there is a sovereign overlord is independence. I can do it myself, which fits in very well, accepting an Arminian approach to the salvation of a soul and the keeping of a soul. You add to that the fact that these itinerant evangelists, these circuit riders, were without exception, I think, Arminian in their thinking because all that they knew was what they had received from Wesleyan thought in England, their overseer, their founder to that point, and they were reading things that John Wesley had written, and so they went out preaching a gospel that was what we would consider an Arminian framework gospel, and the people coming to know Christ through their preaching, uh, well, that's what the gospel is. That's what the truth is. There's nothing else, and Consequently, uh, many uh, were very hostile toward um, the Calvinistic understanding of the God, word of God, which to me is the purest exposition of the gospel known to man. I cannot say that it's perfect. Nothing is perfect, uh, short of the word of God itself and the God who gave the word. But nonetheless, this was the um, theological emphasis of the circuit-writing preachers. Uh, this Ezekiel Cooper also had in his lap desk letters from several women whose names he had cut out of the letters which were proposing marriage to him. And I don't think he forged them. I think they were probably uh, the real thing. Uh, he had cut their names out to protect uh, the guilty. But um, 
by this means, he could demonstrate to people that he was eligible for marriage and sought after, uh, but uh, chose not to do it. In fact, those itinerants who were married, you can only imagine, had a very difficult home life, having to leave their wife and their children. Uh, there was a time when the Methodist itinerant would be paid $64 per month if the funds were available. And his wife at home would be paid the same amount. And for each child that they had, there was an additional stipend added to that. And that's the way they lived. And the husband would come home from a month of circling the circuits by horseback and be home a short time before it's time to head out and start all, all over again on uh, three to 500 mile circuit, some of them as much as a 600 mile circuit that they would travel. So the circuit riders, um, here are just a few of the things they observed. Um, Freeborn Gerritsen wrote in his journal, I was pursued by the wicked, knocked down, and left almost dead on the highway, my face scarred and bleeding, and then imprisoned. And of course, days and nights by these men were spent in the elements, hunting or fishing for food, depending on the hospitality of strangers. Circuit riders would have to spend the night with any family that would put them up and eat whatever was available to eat. Uh, John Tolley's diary recalls a meal he shared with the family. He wrote, fed upon musty cornbread and the tough lungs of a deer fried in rancid bacon grease, and corn coffee sweetened with syrup, S-I-R-U-P. Uh, John Perner wrote uh, concerning his travels, uh, some of them, this was a good stopping place, or he would say, I'm never stopping there again. Because of the accommodations that they had, he even talks about staying with people that were not Methodists but tried to spread the gospel to them also. James uh, Ryle, J.C. Ryle, the uh, English Anglican bishop who wrote in the middle 1800s, observed concerning the Methodists uh, of the first generation, which I will speak of, God willing, tomorrow morning, um, that they preached wherever they could. They preached simply, and they preached zealously. Those were his three descriptors of those men in England, Wesley, Whitfield, and the ones who were traveling preachers there, and I'm sure that applied to the ones here in the States. Well, they weren't all in the States, somewhere out in the wilds, but uh, the ones in the States and on the western frontier. The unique emphasis of these men was definitely regeneration. You must be born again. And I might add that uh, among some of them, there was attached to that stories that we might wonder about. Uh, emotionalism, uh, enthusiasm, as it was called then, and for which some of them were criticized. They preached a second blessing, that after one is saved, there is yet another great burst of progress to be known, another coming and filling fully of the Spirit of God, and you are to seek that 
second blessing. Connected with the second blessing was Wesley's concept of perfect love. The teaching that by following a rigorous godliness uh, such as they had defined in the Holy Club that I read a while ago, that you could come to the point where sin began to fade from you. And you could come to a place where you did not sin. And this was a target, an objective, for many of these circuit-riding preachers. They longed to be at that point, and perhaps that was some of the motivation for their self-denial and self-deprivation being on horseback for hundreds of miles in an unmarked wilderness, months at a time. They wanted to be free of the world and to come to that place where they had a love for God which was perfect, undiluted, unobscured by the fleshly desires. And some of them became very discouraged that they had not and did not find themselves attaining that. Um, one uh, that uh, I had read of uh, finally believed through his inability to do that, that he had in fact lost his salvation, that he wasn't even saved, had never been, or, or, or had lost what he did have. And uh, the Arminian emphasis allowed for uh, one who believed to stop believing, and if you stop believing, then you're not saved, because you're saved by believing. So if you no longer believe, then you've lost it. You're, you've lost your salvation or not saved. That perfect love, second blessing, regeneration, these things were preached with great, great zeal. Uh, one of the effects of the circuit riding, how am I doing on time? My clock's not working. Five minutes. Five minutes. Five minutes, okay. Five minutes to breakfast. The um, um, camp meeting grew up out of this, and I thought to myself, I'm probably going to be speaking here to a group of people who have seen Sheffy. How many of you have seen the movie Sheffy? Yes, most of you, many of you. If you haven't, I encourage you to, to do so. This is a, a production of Bob Jr. University, which was made <laughs> 50 years ago, was it? I was While I was a student there, that students were allowed to have beards, and I think it was uh, Brad Carper's brother, Alan, who was one of the uh, stagehands uh, helping with the production of uh, the film Sheffy. And in the cemetery scene, they made gravestones out of styrofoam and engraved their own names on them. So as I can recall, going into Alan Carper's room, seeing a gravestone with his name on it, sitting there in the room. <laughs> College boys will have fun, no two ways about it. Uh, in fact, men get together and have fun. Uh, they never get together without a laugh. Um, but uh, the camp meetings came about, and uh, Sheffy focused on that, and Sheffy was an itinerant preacher. Uh, um, so, yes, uh, yes, where did I start? I, I thought to myself, I'm talking to people who already know everything about it. They've seen Sheffy. Um, but uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, go ahead and get a copy and, and view it. But um, the camp meeting where people would come together from distant areas, distant being 20 miles, uh, that was a great distance then. And there would be a concentrated preaching there by the various itinerants who were from the various districts around. The, the organization of the system, you had the bishop, and then you had the district, 
superintendents uh, who were often itinerants themselves and under their superintendence was a group of itinerants. And um, a circuit writer might serve a circuit for two years and then be moved by the superintendent to another circuit elsewhere. Uh, no objections allowed and they readily bowed and accepted the moving about which uh, continues in the Methodist churches as uh, in many cases every year or two pastors are reassigned to another congregation by the district superintendent. So um, one emphasis of all of this, which uh, I think comes from uh, Francis Asbury, was the exhortation, fix the eye of faith upon Jesus. Like the snakebite victims in the wilderness, look to the serpent. It doesn't depend on the strength of your gaze. It depends upon what God has provided, and he does. And so that is uh, something of the life of the uh, itinerants. And let me just conclude now with a few comments uh, that I trust will maybe help us uh, in ways of application, if I can find to the end of it. Uh, first of all, uh, although the itinerants in generally, generally were of a different theological emphasis that we would be, the work of the Methodist circuit writers was undoubtedly a work of God. God was moving. Uh, I wish I had time to read to you some of the comments regarding the impact these had on the development of American culture. The people they were ministering to were the, not simply the grassroots, they were the very bottom tip of the grassroots of this country and out of the culture of those communities so profoundly influenced by the Methodist circuit riders would develop a national culture which up into the early days of the last century I think was so much God-focused that we wouldn't recognize it today. Not perfect, no, no, but certainly a sense of God consciousness. God worked all of that and the circuit riders ministry was clearly used of God in this nation to make this nation much of what it is. The success of the circuit riders may help to explain, as I've already alluded, the independent spirit of the Americans and the Arminian tendency of so much of American evangelicalism. The third observation, their devotion and zeal is certainly commendable and exemplary. Be ye therefore steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. <laughs> For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, not one word of his will fall or fail. And then something I think we need to be reminded of often is this. God has never used a man whose theology was perfect. He bypasses those and uses the humble, the meek, those who recognize that though I believe the doctrines of grace as we know them are the purest exposition of the gospel known to man, yet surely there are things I don't see. And surely there's no place for me to take pride in what I believe 
the Apostle Paul wrote inerrantly and infallibly, now we see in part. And that is the place of God's people. God has always used imperfect vessels, ignorant, downcast. The circuit riders were not judged on the basis of whether they had seminary credentials. They didn't. Many of them were out preaching within months of their conversion. The question was, can they preach and are souls being saved? May it be that we rejoice in the progress of the gospel knowing that it's not a perfect theology or a perfect methodology that wins the day, but the power of God, and may we desire that above all other things. Well, let's bow together as we pray. Almighty God and merciful, faithful, kind, loving, heavenly Father, we rejoice today in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of lords and King of kings, who is the Savior and sovereign of this itinerants and is the Savior and sovereign of all of those who trust in him. And we pray, Lord God, that as we reflect upon brethren of the past who were imperfect instruments in the hand of a perfect God and through whom the perfect work of eternity is accomplished among men, that we might, like them, be humbly and wholeheartedly consumed in the work of the gospel. In the glory that is yours alone, may we live and walk and rejoice and know the hand of God upon our feeble, meager labors here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. All right, no doubt breakfast is ready or almost ready, so you can make your way across to the other building downstairs. We'll give thanks down there and enjoy the fellowship.